This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being. Being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. superpower is the ability to choose the meaning we give to our circumstances. Two individuals may confront the same exact situation and have a totally different reaction to it. One interpretation can be empowering and the other totally disempowering. Our ability to choose how we respond to circumstances is the most important capacity we have and will massively impact the results we get in life. There is no better example than the stories of Viktor Frankl and Edith Eger, two Holocaust survivors who have written about their unimaginable ordeals. In Man's Search for Meaning, Frankl recounts the horror of his treatment at the hands of Nazi guards at the Auschwitz death camp. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's way. Eger was also imprisoned at Auschwitz. Years after the war, just before turning 40, she was given a copy of Frankel's book to read while she was studying to get her undergraduate degree in psychology. That night, she read the book and realized something that would change her life forever. In her book, The Choice, Eger writes, Each moment is a choice. No matter how frustrating or boring or constraining or painful or oppressive our experience, we can always choose how we respond. And I finally begin to understand that I too have a choice. This realization will change my life. Frankel became Eger's mentor and good friend. She went on to confront her pain and heal the trauma that had been haunting her ever since she was liberated from Auschwitz. She received her PhD at age 51 and has become a renowned author, therapist, and speaker, writing The Choice at age 90. Take a look at your own life right now. Where are you facing a challenge that you are allowing to hold you back? How can you use the human superpower to choose a different, more empowering meaning? If you want to master your code and lead an extraordinary life, You must cultivate and use the superpower of choice, says Darren Gold. Valeria Tellis interviews Darren about his book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. Darren Gold is a managing partner at the Triumph Group, where he advises and coaches CEOs and their leadership teams at many of the world's most innovative companies, including Roche, Dropbox, Lululemon, Sephora, Cisco, eBay, Activision, 
and Warner Brothers. As a former CEO and longtime board member, Darren brings deep personal leadership experience to his work with organizations. He has a BA from UCLA and a JD from the University of Michigan. Darren is the author of the new book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. Here is the interview with Darren Gold. In your own words, who is Darren Gold? Well, well, I, uh, I devote a, an entire chapter to this notion of identity that we all have a an identity. Oftentimes, it's subconscious, and oftentimes the identity doesn't help us achieve the things that we want to achieve in life. And I urge everyone, and I've done this work myself, to develop an identity that really serves you. So maybe the best way to answer that question is with my identity statement, which is something I say every single day, uh, multiple times a day. And it's as follows. I'm an extraordinary leader, coach, author, speaker, athlete, husband, father, son, brother, friend, and colleague. I command my mind and body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact the lives of others. So there's a lot of ways to answer that question, but maybe perhaps that's a good one to start. Yeah, it's a very good one. Thank you uh, for being aware of that when you say unlimited possibilities, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's beautiful and true. I have some warm-up questions before we talk about your book, Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. So my first warm-up question is, what is life? What is life to you? That's a great question. I don't, I'm not sure I've ever been asked that question. I think the way I would answer it is just it's the totality of our experiences. And you know, as I'm thinking about it for the first time, um, that is a, uh, you know, our experiences are very much uh, in our control. And uh, they're, you know, in large part a construction. So, uh, you know, I would say life to me is the totality of our experiences. And how we experience what we experience is really at the essence of the book that I've written, because uh, we can, you know, all share the same circumstances externally in our environment. And yet each one of us have a completely different experience of what that is. So life to me is about the, um, you know, the unlimited possibility of constructing the kind of experience that you want for yourself. And, um, and that really, I think, opens up a lot of questions around how to do that. And, and what does that really mean? Yeah. And I have a lot of questions for you for yeah. later today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so my follow-up question is, what do you think is the opposite of life? Well, the opposite of life. I mean, you know, instinctively, I guess you could answer that and say death. And there's a part in the book where I say life and death is a polarity that needs to be understood and, and integrated as a whole. One can't exist without the other. So maybe that's why, the way I'll answer it. And there's a, you know, I bring a lot of ancient wisdom um, into the book and the notion of paradox or polarity, you know, the yin and the yang, right, I think applies to life and death. And uh, what I urge the readers to do is not to see them as opposites, but to see them as an opportunity to integrate uh, two different poles. And it's only by truly uh, accepting and embracing death that we can really live and vice versa. Um, and so maybe that's the, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, yes and yes. What is the meaning of freedom to you? 
the word choice comes up for me when you ask that question. You know, that, that uh, in many ways I argue in the book that we're a prisoner of our programs. And I define a program to be the subconscious safety-based rules, values, and beliefs that really drive our behavior and limit our, our, our effectiveness. And um, the absence of that is the freedom to choose a set of conscious beliefs, values, and rules that really serve you and lead to extraordinary results. And so for, to me, freedom is the ability to be aware enough such that you can um, choose the way you experience your life, choose the way you react to your circumstances. And in that choice, and I think it was Viktor Frankl says, the last of the human freedoms is the ability to choose your attitude regardless of circumstances. So to me, it's, uh, it's about that kind of choice. Yeah, wonderful. At this time, what do you think is the world's greatest need? Well, it's a perfect question to ask in the time where we're living right now. Part of me wants to say it's the need to, to slow down a little bit. And again, there's a polarity, right? There is, it doesn't mean we slow down and, and stop growing. Yeah, I think the, what the world needs today is more wisdom. And I say wisdom in a sense, some people would use the word consciousness. Um, I think for me, wisdom uh, implies that, uh, you know, that we've known, we've known everything we need to know for thousands of years. It's about actually applying the wisdom that's been available to us. And um, part of it goes to this notion of being able to have enough wisdom and maturity to see that um, the, the inherent paradox of life, I think part of why we're so divided today as a society and a world is that we uh, haven't cultivated the capacity to and don't have the wisdom to appreciate um, the complexity of life. And so we end up getting very polarized. So uh, to me, I think the world needs more wisdom and more maturity, particularly from the people that are that we've given the responsibility to lead us. Yes. And then to have that as leaders ourselves, because we're, everyone's a leader. We're leading either a team or we're leading our families or we're leading ourselves. But to bring wisdom into the, uh, the leading of, you know, the leadership that we, that we're being asked to, to do. What is love to you? How do you define love? What is love? Um, I think love is, um, These are all really great questions and all questions that I haven't given a lot of thought to. So I'm just giving you my in the moment response. Right. But I think it's a uh, it's the ability to um, I think this writer that I love, Edwin Friedman, says it's in the context of leadership to be both separate and connected. And in some ways, um, love is distorted and perverted um, where we become either too connected and emotionally fused or we remain too distant and don't get the benefit and the fruits of, of true relationship with, with another human being. And I think again, it kind of goes back to this polarity. You know, can we, can we integrate the tension of being separate? Meaning I, I still retain integrity and, and, a, and a self and being deeply connected to another human being. And if we can do those two things together, that to me is my definition of love. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you um, explain these things. I have to use the same word love in a way. Where, what, and who is God to you? I think the first way I'd answer that is I don't know. So I, I hope to give, you know, to, by, by saying that, I hope to convey a sense of humility and not knowing this. And, uh, and then I get, you know, I don't get too caught up on the, the semantics, whether it's God or the universe or unity or spirit or, you know, Gaia or whatever sort of, you know, belief system one subscribes to i think sometimes the uh we get lost in in the you know the language of it all 
But to me, there's some some higher um, source. I think the word source is the one I would use that represents a connectedness that I think, again, a lot of the ancient traditions point to that, you know, psychologically, we develop a a sense of self. Um, you know, some could call it an illusion. You know, Jung said that, you know, life is about building up enough ego so that we can dissolve ego. We can dissolve the sense of self in the second half of our life. And so to me, you know, God or unity or source represents this notion that everything is connected. Um, nothing is separate. And I think true peace and joy and fulfillment comes from an ability to just even see the possibility that that's true, let alone to really embody it. What do you think is the main purpose of your life? Um, that's such a you know interesting question. I get that question asked a lot, and I talk about it in the book, and most of the ancient traditions have some notion that you know everybody's born with a, a purpose. Um, Dharma is you know kind of the Hindu version of, of it, and Teleki was the version the Greeks had. I love the, the, the Japanese word ikigai, which is the intersection of four things, that what you love to do, what you're good at, what the world needs, and what you can get paid for. I feel I had a very wow. practical definition. <laughs> it literally means the reason for waking up in the morning in Japanese. But where I, I, I ultimately end up is Abraham Maslow's saying, which is what one can be, one must be. And I think, think if there's a purpose in life, and I'm not sure there is, but if there is, it's the opportunity and I think kind of responsibility to live into your full potential. And that goes beyond vocation or what you do and what you get, you know, how you spend your time, other than to say that um, this process of being everything you can be, being fully actualized and beyond that path, I think is the is the the purpose that um, certainly guides me and I think is a, a useful guide for for many. Yeah, yeah, it resonates a lot. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing your book, Master Your Code? Yeah, the most immediate one was my oldest son, who's now 20, was leaving for college. And I uh, decided to sit down and write a letter to him, which was humbly speaking an attempt to sort of give him a bit of a guidebook to leading a good life. And it was a few pages and I shared the letter after I shared it with my son with a few friends and colleagues. And before I knew it, they had shared it with a number of people and it had like thousands of views uh, without even me trying. And so I knew there was something that was really deeply resonating in that letter for people and that it may contain the seeds of a book. And so I used that as the inspiration for doing something that I'd wanted to do for a long time, which was write a book. And so it became the kind of original construct for the book and certainly the, the inspiration for it. What a wonderful topic to talk about. I absolutely find it fascinating, this, um, the idea of beliefs. When you say that everything is a construct in a way, we are just driven by beliefs and they are just made up. They are made up. So let's talk about that. I have some specific questions here, if I can get my screen back. <laughs> How are beliefs different from values, awareness, consciousness, a word that you used um, earlier, inner knowing and wisdom? Yeah, well, so I think beliefs and values are, are quite similar. We can get into some distinctions around that, but I'd almost lump them together. Right. Right? These are the things that uh, 
guide us in terms of how we make meaning, right? So we are meaning-making machines, right? The, oh, the yeah. environment shows up to us as objectively uh, meaningless. And as human beings, we ascribe to our environment, our circumstances, some meaning. And it's the, the, the source code for that meaning are really the beliefs and values and rules that we construct uh, very er- at a very early age. Even our emotions, um, the latest research suggests, are constructed. They're not, they're not innate. Um, there are certain cultures and indigenous populations that don't have certain emotions. So more and more, we're starting to begin to appreciate how much the way we construct and interpret our environment, the meaning that we give to our circumstances is driven by a set of rules and beliefs and values. So I kind of lump those together. They have different sort of textures to them, um, but they're the things that uh, they're sort of the source code that allows us or, or guides us in how we make meaning. And how we make meaning determines the actions we take and the results that we get. So it's that's the sort of what I call the architecture of performance. If you want to change the outcome in your life, you have to take a different set of actions. And if you want to take a different set of actions, you have to understand what is at the source of action. And the source of action to me is how we make meaning and how we make meaning is a function of the beliefs, values and rules that we have constructed. And the key in that is what has been constructed can be reconstructed. And that's the that's really the human superpower. Um, the other things you've, you point to wisdom and consciousness, I think are, you know, we can get into each one of those, but but they're they're in a different category for me. Okay, so you, there's a difference between beliefs and awareness, consciousness, and wisdom, right? Yeah. For, so awareness to me and, and consciousness, you know, and they can be, of course, distinct, but I would put those together in the foundational capacity to even appreciate that you have beliefs to begin with. Mm-hmm. So most of us walk through life. It's sort of like the story I share in the book of the two younger fish swimming and the older fish swims along and he says, hey, boys, how's the water? And they say, what the hell is water? And it's a great metaphor for how we live life for the most part, which is unaware, right? No awareness, unaware that we have beliefs to begin with, not to mention that those beliefs are inherently constructed and can be reconstructed. So awareness almost comes before all of this, right? You have to have awareness to really appreciate um, the beliefs and values that you hold. If you can't change what you can't see, and awareness and wisdom is the source of the seeing. And there's a whole conversation we can have around how do you, how do you cultivate awareness? <laughs> yeah, right? uh, yeah. Sounds a lot to me like this space. So awareness, consciousness might be the space where all this manifests, the beliefs and emotions, feelings, the experience, let's say. Yeah, that's right. You speak of three things that we ought to know about beliefs. Talk to me about them. Yeah, so number one, they're made up, and we've talked about that. Number two is they're largely, not always, but largely designed to keep you safe and to protect you. And oftentimes, because of that, they're limiting. And then third uh, is what we've already mentioned, which is because they're made up, they're reconstructed. And I say that that about every single belief you hold, even the ones that you believe are fundamentally true. And the, the distinction I offer is that the real question isn't, is the belief true? The real question is, the, is does the belief serve you? Um, and that, that distinction, I think, can, is very, very powerful because a lot of the beliefs we hold, number one, have served us really well. They've protected us, they've served us. They may be limiting our effectiveness and they may very well be true, but I'm kind of not that interested in the truth of 
the beliefs I hold. I'm like <laughs> much more interested in the question is this serving me? And what would it look like to hold either a different belief or an expanded belief or just to hold on to the belief with less uh, less of a grip, less attachment? And either of those allow for more degrees of freedom to choose. Wow. I'm wondering how do we get to that point? Because um, a lot of times if we're not aware, we're just we live by these programs that's almost impossible to know mm-hmm. what we know or how we are or what we are acting upon. So that's one question. The other one's about how do we overcome the fear of replacing our beliefs and creating this new identity? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll ask, answer the second question first um, and then get to the first. But the second question is such a good question because oftentimes what we ask ourselves or we ask others if we're helping them is to change our beliefs or to move from something to something, to shift them. And I never, I try to avoid that language um, because what it will induce is resistance in the person being asked to, to change. Uh, partly because, as I said, these beliefs have really served you for a long time in many, ta- many cases. And so I oftentimes use the word evolve or expand. And it's not just being cute or semantic. It's actually an honoring of, we don't have to let go of these beliefs, but we need to, we, we have the opportunity to expand or evolve them so that we have more range of actions. So I have and have had a strong need to be likable. And I talk about this in the book. And it was one of the first sort of moments of awareness for me. And I began to be aware that, wow, like I thought everybody, you know, had to be liked and was really obsessed about being liked. And first of all, I knew, <laughs> oh, no, it's cute. kind of unique to me and others have it, of course, but it's not everybody. And number two, it really served me. You know, I got along really well. I had a lot of personal and professional success. Number three, I could see where it was really limiting me. I was having difficulty having real honest and direct conversations with people. And I was depriving people that worked with me of, of good feedback. I was depriving myself of honest feedback because I was so likable. It was hard for people to give me constructive feedback. And so I began to say, what if I, I don't have to let go of this you know, belief in being likable because it serves yeah. me, but I can also expand it to say, I don't need to be likable. Um, mm. I can put at risk my likability when the situation demands it. And it allowed me to really open up in a way. And the paradox was, the irony was that I became even more likable. So (laughs) without the obsessive need to be likable, um, I'm more authentic. I'm more honest. I'm more mature. Uh, Not all the time, uh, but I strive to be. (laughs) And um, so that's one of many uh, sort of examples I could offer you. And I'm sure you've experienced and your listeners uh, can relate to where it's not a letting go of something or changing. It's an honoring of what you have and an adding to and expanding that really is really what we're talking about. Yeah, I love that integration. And I also really like the way you changed uh, the word fear and you replaced it with resistance. Mm, yeah, That's good too, because that's exactly, I mean, it might be coming from fear, but it, it creates resistance, right? Yeah, that's right. What is locus of control and why is it important? It may be arguably the most important uh, psychological concept we, we have and the most important driver of, I use the word extraordinary. I'm not even going to try to define that. You can define it whatever way you want as a listener. But um, we have 50 years of research around this 
note this concept that was um, first identified in 1966 by a psychologist named Julian Rotter. And he developed this notion that people have lie somewhere on a spectrum, but on this kind of locus of control spectrum. At one end are people that have a belief about the circumstance, their circumstances as follows, which is circumstances shape me, circumstances happen to me. There's very little I can do to affect my situation. And that would that's what he called an external locus of control. It's a powerless uh, place to be, understandable, but powerless. On the other end of the spectrum is an internal locus of control, which is I shape my circumstances. There's always something I can do to affect any situation. And you can imagine that's a lot more powerful of an orientation. And we have 50 years of research that demonstrates convincingly that people who are closer to an internal locus of control have significant outcomes in virtually every dimension of life, finance, career, marriages, relationship, health, education. Yet it's very difficult. Uh, most of us are conditioned to come from an in, from an external locus of control, what I call a victim mindset. The world happens to me because there's a big payoff. I get to re- avoid responsibility. Yeah. I get to point the finger and blame others. And if we're not mm. careful, every one of us, myself included, right. that is the sort of natural default place given our culture and conditioning to go to. And yet it won't serve us. Why do you think this happens? Why do you think most of us get stuck in that mentality, in that state of mind of victimhood? Is that for lack of opportunity <laughs> to explore? No, I don't think so. I think it's this payoff, you know, that we all get from a victim mindset, which is, as I said, you know, I get to blame somebody else. I get to avoid responsibility. Responsibility in the long term is wonderful. In the short term can be pretty painful. It means, you know, it means I have to go be independent, work harder, I'm playing to win, not playing not to lose. I'm taking risk. And uh, and if I'm not careful, I end up blaming myself, which, by the way, is not what this is intended to do. Um, this is an assertion of not of truth, but an assertion, a stand to take in, in life. And um, so most of us will avoid that because we've been conditioned very early on to avoid responsibility. And uh, it's a very seductive and easy place to go to. Yeah. And you're right about that. There's no um, empowerment. It's not empowering to to be in that space, to live in such a way. Yeah, you're, you know, either prisoner of your circumstances or a shaper of them. And that is a fundamental choice. And again, we can all point to, you know, I, I, I grew up in a very challenged environment. You know, my both my parents were incarcerated at times. I lived with my father in a one bedroom apartment. I to point to my circumstances. And so I really empathize and feel for people who are in challenging situations. And yet we all have this fundamental human superpower, which is to choose how we make meaning of those circumstances. And even in the worst circumstances, we can choose to make positive, empowering meaning, or we can choose to make a disempowering meaning. Everyone has that choice. The disempowering meaning is a lot easier to make, uh, but it, it, don't, it doesn't serve you, certainly not in the long run. Yes, and that takes awareness, self-awareness. And we allured to talk about awareness earlier a bit more. So would you give um, us some suggestions on how to become more aware and more open? You know, I think uh, I'll, I'll maybe I'll, I'll, I'll describe it this way. There's, there's three dimensions in life. There's a dimension of the I know what I know dimension, right. which is very small. Uh, there's a second dimension is what I know that I don't know. And that's where traditional learning happens, right? No, we don't know something. We go and we seek information and we now know it. 
Uh, and then there's this enormous, almost infinite dimension of what I don't know that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And it's that's where real transformation and growth happens. And so the one way to get access to that dimension is through distinctions. Now, we've talked about several already, right? We talked about locus of control as a distinction. Distinctions create the opportunity to discover something that you didn't know that you didn't know. And the way you get distinctions is by reading, learning, right? There is an immense amount of, forget about my book, immense amount of incredible wisdom out there that is basically what it's doing is it's offering people that are open to it distinctions to enter the domain of what I don't know, I don't know. And so if you're listening to this right now, you're already a learner. And it's about just taking advantage of the incredible wisdom out there and availing yourself of powerful distinctions that give you access to parts of you that you didn't know that you didn't know. And that's where real growth happens. Yeah. So it starts with that uh, curiosity, with this sense of openness to what is happening that we, yeah, that we don't know, but we would like to know. I love that. Yeah. Talk to me about survival strategies. This is also something important to know. You talk about the three types of um, survivor strategies. Yeah, and again, here's another distinction, right? So that, you know, something I didn't know I didn't know. Uh, it was only through distinctions that allowed me to to, to get, you know, to understand this. Um, and what I'm offering in the book is, a, I believe, a powerful distinction, which starts with the premise that all of us, um, at some point in our childhood, experience something traumatic. It can be something really serious, um, what I call kind of capital T trauma or something less serious, uh, lowercase t trauma, but still serious for, for a child. Uh, you know, you were bullied or teased, right? And um, in that moment, that traumatic moment, um, what we do as children in particular is we form these survival strategies. We develop rules in the moment to make sure that we're protected and safe that we feel loved and feel secure and have self-worth. And I argue that there are three basic core survival strategies, and this draws on the work of, of psychology. The one, the first is a belonging strategy, the need to be liked. I shared mine, right, is a belonging strategy, the need to be included, to be accepted. There's a distancing strategy, which is the need to be above it all, to be distant, to be smart, uh, to be right. And everybody has a little bit of all of these, but they usually have one dominant survival strategy. And the third is a controlling survival strategy, the need to be in control, the need to win, the need to be perfect, the need to succeed. And and oftentimes you'll have a primary survival strategy that you can link back to something that happened in early childhood that is the primary motivator in your life. And that's a great place to start. Because if you understand what is the primary rule, belief that I hold that is my, that, that really motivates me. And then you can start to, now you're aware of it. Number one, that's enormous, right? And number two, with that awareness, you can be more in choice. You can honor, Hey, how's it really served me? I've got a really strong need for, to succeed. Wow. That's really served me. And where is it holding you back? And what's a new relationship to that belief or a new belief that's more expansive that you can experiment with? And that's your path into, you know, a big chapter of your growth. Yeah, it makes me think about this, the time we are living now, that it might be very appropriate or perfect for exploration of these understandings and wisdom and self-discovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, for sure. Yeah, talk to me about the importance of commitment. How do we make precision commitments or how can we be more precise when it comes to commitments and the importance of honoring them? 
it's such a, an important and I think overlooked aspect of performance, whether that's individual performance or collective performance. I do a lot of work in the context of teams and organizations. And uh, what I argue is that a precondition to performance is the integrity of the commitments that are being made. And really organizations, any kind of human system, a family, or even yourself are just a network of commitments that are being made. That's really what human systems do. And what you'll observe, even with yourself, but certainly in organizations, is the precision of those commitments is really, really low. And then maybe more importantly is the, the following through on those commitments is really low. And so those two things um, tend to massively compromise performance. And so it starts with a totally different relationship to your word, one that has a lot of weight to it. So when I give my word, I give it with a belief that I am my word and that when I give my word, it matters and that I don't give it freely. Uh, I give it after due consideration. And there's a different relationship that happens to both my word and to others when that happens. Um, I also give my word with precision. So if I promise you something, I get really precise. I say, look, I'm going to do this. Um, I'll deliver this to you by 5 p.m. next Wednesday. Does that work for you? as opposed to, sure, I'll, I'll get it to you, right? And then the key right. distinction right. is, and once I've right. made that commitment, is I honor my word, which doesn't necessarily mean I keep my commitments, because there's gonna be some things that get in the way, right? I can't, if I may, had to keep every single commitment I made, I'd be paralyzed, I'd stop making commitments. <laughs> but if I honor my commitments, right, what I do is, as soon as I know I can't keep it, I let that person know that I've made right. the commitment to, and I renegotiate. I said, hey, I can't get it to you. Something's come up. I'm deeply sorry. What can I do to make you whole? And would, you know, the following day work for you? And I, they, they know that right away. Um, that's just the, the performance. Think about the performance in a relationship, a marriage, or in a family, or in a team. If everybody had that kind of relationship to the commitments they made to each other. Oh, it would be a completely different kind of life. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So clear communication. And I also love what you said about honoring our commitments, but then we, if something happens, life changes and we are able to renegotiate and just communicate clearly again about those changes and, and make it the relationship better. But then I'm wondering how do we uh, overcome the fear of being judged? It's a great question. And I, and I raise it in the book, right? So part of the difficulty in being precise with our commitments and honoring them is the psychological baggage we bring to these, to our relationships, right? So, you know, I, you know, I may have a difficulty saying no, right? And so I'm, I'm making a commitment because I'm fearful of saying no. Guess what's going to happen to that commitment, right? right. Over time, right? So, or I have to change the commitment because I've done everything I can, right? And I've, I'm going to be really reluctant to change the commitment because I don't want people to think, right? Or I'm going to hold off being precise. Mm. So I create options so that, I don't want to let people down. So we have to, it, again, it always starts with owning our own maturity around these things and understanding mm. what's getting in the way of me being able to, you know, just say no cleanly. And I shared earlier with you, you know, this, this survival strategy I had around being likable. Imagine how much that got in the way of me just politely declining or renegotiating um, and how much that compromised my own performance and the performance of the groups that I was part of. So the biggest impediment to this kind of practice is your own programming and the lack of awareness around it. And, you know, a big part of being able to do this is to begin to own, like, where are your hangups and how do you 
begin to grow and mature around those so that you can, you know, you can get, engage in these kinds of commitments with this kind of precision. I like that. So that leads to my next question about forgiving unconditionally, also self-love and self-care. Talk to me about them. Yeah, I have a whole chapter devoted to forgiveness. And it's, um, I think, part of you know, our programming is not to forgive, right? We hold grudges very, very easily. Uh, I held a grudge against my mother for you know, until after she passed away. And uh, I was able to forgive her after um, she passed away. And I shared, a, I think, a pretty powerful example of that. But, you know, for me, holding on to grudges was an extremely immature and selfish act. Um, it did not serve me. Uh, it was an enormous weight on my psychology. It impacted and constrained my own ability to be loving and to be loved. And the maturity of being able to forgive completely and unconditionally was perhaps the most liberating and empowering part of my my journey. And so I think if you want to be really free to lead an extraordinary life, coming to terms with the programming you have around holding grudges and blaming others um, and forgiving uh, is so important. And the biggest hang up people have is like, well, it's going to let people off the hook, you know, or, and, and it's like, this doesn't mean not holding people accountable. Um, it just means doing yourself, you know, uh, giving yourself the gift of releasing that kind of negativity, which is huge. Yeah. And that liberates so much energy so we can do positive things. Um, so I guess one more question about forgiveness. Is that a practice? That's something that we do on a daily basis or it is a understanding? I think it, it has to begin with a, a practice, right? Because, uh, you know, until we until it becomes, you know, more sort of um, we become more unconsciously competent with it. Right. And uh, but for, for many people, it's, it needs to be a daily practice like gratitude, you know, where it doesn't come to us quite naturally. And, uh, you know, we can go through, you know, all of the grudges that we're holding and, and just offer people some compassion and, and understanding. And then I think at the root of it is a, a basic orientation to life. For me, I've gotten to the point, um, where it's impossible for me to hold a grudge. I just, it's so inconsistent with the way I just see the world. You know, I, I don't need the practice anymore, but I think for some time it's important. Wow. So it's a, for you, it was a shift in perspective. That's what came to mind. Yeah. So something shifted. It's a, and now, in a way, you can go back to be what you used to. That's right. Yeah. That's wonderful. Would you like to add anything or read a passage in your book before I ask you my final questions? Well, I think the only other thing that we, uh, we started with, but we didn't get, uh, get into that I might just want to re-emphasize is just the importance of identity. So we've talked a lot about beliefs. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in particular, there are a set of beliefs that one holds about him or herself. And this is what I call our identity. And every one of us has an identity. Most of us have a subconscious identity, meaning we walk around with a set of beliefs about ourselves and we're not even aware of what those beliefs are. And the most powerful driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. So if you want different results in life, you have to be aware of the identity you're holding. And I like to say, you know, if you want an extraordinary life, you've got to have an extraordinary identity. So, and just like any other belief, beliefs about yourself, your identity can be reconstructed. So there's a whole body of work and practice around really becoming aware of the beliefs that I hold about myself and then the choice about what 
beliefs I want to hold about myself going forward. I love this um, perspective that's open to life and it's not so solid. When you talk about identity, that makes me think about um, the fixed ideas, almost like obsessed thoughts about how things should be, how we should act in other people in life. And that most of the time holds us back, this kind of um, way of living. But I love the way you, your method its bringing this space of self-discovery is that we can replace uh, beliefs that no longer serves us with new ones that can make our lives better and healthier. Mm. Uh, my final question is, how do you define success? What is to be successful to you? Yeah, well, I think everybody should have their own definition. Um, I don't think there is a single definition of success. And for me, I judge success by the way I feel, right? And for me, if I feel alive and fulfilled and energized and joyful um, and easeful, uh, and if you want to think about the absence of what I feel would be fear and angst and anxiety um, and weight, Right. So it's like either the, the presence of certain feelings or the absence of others. To me, I'm doing something that's leading to success. And then the other way I'd answer that kind of goes back to the, the Maslow quote. What I, you know, one, one, what one must can be and one must be is, you know, in some ways, success is about being on a path to your own self-discovery and self-actualization. And it's a path. There's no end to that. Mm -hmm. But if you're on it yeah. consistently and you're moving forward, then to me, that's success. Yeah. Regardless of you know material accumulation, um, that can either, as the Stoics said, those are preferred indifference. So I'm <laughs> yeah. indifferent to them. I'd like them, but, but I'm different to them. And then there's prefer, you know, there's non-preferred indifference, <laughs> like you know poverty and you know and pain, right? Which oh, is yeah. like, but can't control them. You know they'll come and go, and uh, I can be, I can be, I can have them as preferences, but but not attached to them. Yeah, I love that. What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself? The hardest lesson to learn about myself was, I think it's been. This will be get a little personal, but in my uh, in my marriage, and I think you know what the gift that I was able to receive was that the health and well-being of my relationship was primarily, and I would actually say fully dependent upon my own healing and growth. And when I finally, finally got that, it opened up possibilities for the most important relationship in my life that had been constrained by an unconscious belief that it takes two to tango or, you know, if one person's got to do this, if the other person's going to do that, that is a loser. Um, that, that, that strategy, but it, it's hard, you know, to take full responsibility and it doesn't mean you blame or that the other person doesn't have their part, but it's just a stand to take that has a different quality to it. And that was both painful, hard, and incredibly liberating and, and wonderful to, to, to realize. If you knew you would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? Yeah, I'd slow down, you know, and I, and I talk about this quite a bit, uh, to, you know, to myself and others, you know, there's still a, a bit of a treadmill that I'm on and I, you know, I know it intellectually. I think in some respects, this last 30 days for us as a society has been this grand, grand experiment in slowing down a bit and, and starting to raise the question of, 
you know, slowing down has this negative connotation in our society that we somehow give up or we're powerless, we can't get anything done. And I don't think that's the case. But, you know, again, I'll go back to just the polarity. Can I move fast and move slow? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and uh, right. I think there is, I think what I would do is I'd, uh, I'd find a way to really, really integrate that, that polarity. And that's really what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, cause we're all dying. Uh, we're on a process of dying. And, uh, so part of my living is appreciating that and really loving the process of, of dying, um, and figuring it all out and not avoiding the taboo subject of death, which I think many of us tend to do where we're culturally conditioned to avoid the subject. And I think we do our lives a disservice by, by avoiding it. So I'm glad you asked the question. Yeah, you're right. That might be one of the biggest uh, survival strategies, right? The idea that we can live forever. Yes. Do you believe in life after death? I believe, again, I'll start with sort of the humble statement that I'm not sure I know anything. Um, but if I had to believe anything, it would be that um, we just return to the connectedness from where we came. Mm. So we don't, there's no, you know, separateness after death. And in the way we're sort of experience the world as human beings, as corporeal beings, which is the sense of self, but that we return to the total connectedness of everything. So it would be impossible to experience. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be a continuation of what we're experiencing right now, which for 99.9999% of us is, you know, an embodied self. So it's something totally different. And I think we just return to, to everything. That's a great answer. <laughs> um, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? One is that I, there's a lot that I don't know. <laughs> I know for sure. Two is that I just don't know if I know anything for sure. Mm. You know, I, I don't really know anything for sure. I, and I would be dishonest if I tried to answer that question fully. So I'm going to just leave it as the one thing I know for sure is that I don't know anything for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, fair enough. <laughs> um, it has been a fun conversation, open, genuine. Thank you so much for your presence and your wisdom. You have so much wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. You made it a very enjoyable and easy conversation uh, by who you are and the questions you asked. It was a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. So my last, last question, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Yeah, so my book's available on Amazon and hardcover and paperback and Kindle. And I also uh, narrate the audible version of the, of the book, the audiobook. Um, so you can find it there. And then I have a website, darrenjgold.com. And uh, I've started a you know, weekly blog that you can sign up on that website where I, I write something every week and, and share a few things that I'm uh, reading or listening to or otherwise uh, enjoying. Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Darren, and we'll talk soon. Wonderful. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Darren Gold, please visit his website, darrenjgold.com. Dot com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, 
Terry Clayton and Aiden Vickrock. Thank you again for listening and bye for now. Mm-hmm.